0: Hey everybody, welcome to season 2, episode 2 of Create Cast, the show about people who make good. I'm your host, Chase K. If you haven't heard our premiere episode with chocolatier Scott Withrow, make sure you go back and check that out right now. Uh, I definitely did not get any free chocolate for it. Seriously, uh, he's just a really awesome guy. It's a fun interview. And uh, you should check out his stuff. Uh, They're based out of Nashville. Really, really cool stuff. And obviously, if you haven't heard our other episodes, you can also listen to those at either our website, createcastpod.com, or on iTunes. Just go on iTunes, into the store, and search CreateCast. All of our previous episodes are up there for free right now go listen. And even if you listen, listen again. I learn something new every time I do. Uh, even though it's a little bit weird hearing myself interviewing other people talking about all of this cool stuff. But anyways, back to today's episode. Season 2, episode 2. Again, crazy to think that we're already in season 2. Um, I've been recording episodes basically constantly since I sort of launched Great Cast, And this is one that I recorded uh, near the Let's see, I'm trying to think, uh, it would have been around March or April of last year, so quite, uh, quite a ways back. Uh, this episode is with David St. John. Um, if you don't know David, he is an award-winning poet and writer, and also the chair of the English Department at the University of Southern California. Uh, David is an incredible writer, um, and luckily he was kind enough to share one of his poems with us. And uh, that's sort of tacked on at the end of the podcast here. So make sure you stick around after the interview to hear his poem Um, again. Just, I mean, really, really cool. And and it's so different. Uh, I love to read poetry, but when you hear it recited by the author, it's a really different experience. And and we talk a little bit, we we talk about that a bit in the episode, but then we also talk about just his sort of upbringing as a creative person. You know, how he got involved in music and, and writing and and just uh, sort of lyrics as a gateway to his poetry. So as a musician, that's that's really cool for me. Again, David is a true inspiration. Um, My brother uh, went to the University of Southern California, and uh, David was one of the reasons that he ended up at the college. So sort of a cool, uh, full-circle type thing. Again, talk about it in the episode. All good stuff. As always, make sure you show us some love either on iTunes or at our website, createcastpod.com. Com. But hey, that's enough of my yammering. Here's today's episode with David St. John. All right, hey everybody, we're sitting here with David St. John, incredible poet, um, professor here at USC. Uh, This is really cool for me because I'm sure you know that uh, one of my brother's reasons for coming to USC in the first place was for you. So it's kind of a cool full circle thing that I get to sit down with you and uh, I really appreciate you taking uh, the time to come on the show. Well, it's really a pleasure, Chase. And it's, you know, for me, having
1: the connection to Michael, to your brother, um, gives a sense of perspective and dimension and something that I really love about doing what I do. I get to see the friends, I get to see the siblings, I get to see, actually, even, you know, the children of people who were once my students. But that's
0: because I was, like, I started teaching when I was about seven years old. (laughs) See, I mean, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. How did sort of maybe writing and poetry find its way into your life?
1: I actually... uh, You know, you've heard me tell this story, but I actually got into writing somewhat from being in really bad rock and roll bands. And uh, what I discovered quickly was that the thing I did best was to write lyrics. And I came from a family that had books all around. And so I grew up reading books, and I grew up reading both stories and poems that were there. And by the time I was in high school, I became really interested in what language could do and what poems could do. And right when I was a freshman in college, and I started writing poems really seriously. And a terrific young poet who was a senior at the college I was at, which was up in Fresno, Uh, was a poet named Larry Levis, and he introduced me to the poet Philip Levine, who taught there. And Philip Levine, of course, won every prize in America. Later on, it was Poet Laureate. So I was 18. My friend Larry Levis introduces me to Levine, and that very spring, I actually had an offer to be in a really good touring band. And... Uh, This was a band that could have had any bass player between Seattle and Tijuana. And so I said to the guy whose band it was, the keyboardist, I said, why me? I mean, you know, I'm okay, but I'm, you know, I'm not the level of musicians that you guys are. There's a woman who played electric violin who had been a prodigy and was the first violin of a little community symphony when she was like 13. So I said, what's the story here? And it turned out that they had seen uh, a lot of these songs I'd written. And they said, well, you know, we really need someone to write lyrics. Hmm. And at that moment I thought, well, I guess I know my real strength. And that was it. That's when I decided to, because I would have had to quit school. Oh, wow because it was touring. And mm-hmm. so I decided, no, I'm going to stay in school and I'm going to see if I can write poems.
0: Oh, wow. And and I guess that sort of brings me to the obvious question of when you were... You said, obviously, you had a lot of books around and mm-hmm. obviously you were playing music at that time. So maybe what are some of the authors or poets that sort of you were drawn to initially? And also, maybe what are some of the non-writers, maybe musicians or, or other artists that you sort of gravitated towards in those early days?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And when... I was playing music. It was really, I got into it. It was the real, It was the height of this sort of uh, Greenwich Village folk, you know, New York City folk movement. And so I was subscribing to like Sing Out magazine and you know Broadside magazine, and they're very socially politically focused. Um, all of my early interest had to do with that. But then, of course, once the 60s hit, um, I immediately bought a Fender bassman and a bass, and I had this really uh, amazing Farfisa organ that was just rock the place. And, uh, I mean, with my bassman amp and the Farfisa, if somebody got too near the stage, I could just <laughs> blast them back about six feet. It was really fun. Um, but then, you know, I I was really... Attracted to a lot of music that came out of that period. But I also loved musicians, you know, jazz musicians like John Handy and Charles Lloyd. And I loved, um, you know, Ornette Coleman and Coltrane. And so I was listening to a lot of different things mm. that were really exciting to me. One of the things that I think isn't remarked on enough about the 60s is that, You would have Charles Lloyd playing at the Fillmore Auditorium along with The Grateful Dead, I mean, on the same show. And there was a kind of eclectic love of music that I think is really important. I should say, though, that the thing that began to influence me most, especially when I was, not just when I was an undergraduate, but when I went to the University of Iowa, was film. And cinema had this huge influence on my work. And I can remember really, really clearly when I was a graduate student going to see an early movie of Bertolucci's called The Conformist. And The Conformist is based on a novel by the great Italian writer Alberto Moravia. And the thing that blew me away was in fact the cinematography. Mm. and the man who's the the cinematographer who also uh, worked on Last Tango in Paris is a man named Vittorio Storero and there's a scene early on in the movie The Conformist where the protagonist and his wife are having this highly charged, highly sexually charged argument and They're in a room, the film's in color, but it's a room that uses old film noir kind of lighting. So this light's coming through the Venetian blinds in sort of strips and bars. And suddenly the whole room, you understand, for this couple has become a prison. Mm. And I just thought, wow, if I could do that in language, if I could create something as atmospheric and yet really psychologically dense and really charged in this sort of psychosexual way, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. One of the reasons is that I found that what interests me is the dynamic of what happens in relationships. And often the settings of my poems have to do with what goes on between men and women. And I kept trying to find a way in that was unpredictable and this scene in the one movie kind of unlocked it for me
0: I think that's sort of really fascinating just in the sense I, I think you know when people think of writing and especially great writing there, it has this really visual quality to it mm-hmm. so I love that connection to sort of the cinematography aspect and I think especially you see that with a lot of poets and, and just poetry in general is there's this sort of association of it naturally being vis- visual and sometimes maybe that being the point of the poem, sort of an atmosphere, creating an atmosphere. Um, Are there any maybe specific ways that you try and work that into your own writing, or or, or is it just something that comes naturally? It actually
1: tends to change. um, I'd, I'd like to say it's innate, it's in me. It just arises out of nowhere. But it actually depends on the situation I'm trying to sort of manifest in the language. I think, again, the thing about poems, and, and you've heard me say this, is that poems are little pieces of consciousness. They're a writer's sensibility and his or her reckoning with whatever the experience that's being talked about, but in a way that's enacted in language. And if you know another person were a painter, they would try to make that happen on a canvas as you know if you're a musician you're a songwriter you have other ways of trying to do that but for me it has to do
0: with the character of the language Mm -hmm. and the sort of coloration of the language. That's really uh, interesting I was listening to um, an interview the other day with uh, a person who translates ancient poetry Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how uh, when translating something that sort of old there's not necessarily certain words sort of just don't exist or certain terms of phrases, you know, don't exist. And it's sort of trying to take those and say, okay, well, how how do I do this? And, and you know, sometimes it's more about recreating the feeling than it is necessarily about, you know, a direct translation, which I think, you know, I think when we think about maybe just prose, that's sort of hard to grasp, but I think it makes a lot of sense with poetry. That's right. And the best
1: translators have to create what this person was describing is not translating literally what the poem said, but the experience of what the poem did. And needing to do that in his or her native language is something that translators always go through. What's interesting is to see, say, across history in English, how translations of an Italian poet say like Petrarch or a, and a, you know a Spanish writer you can sort of take your choice but generationally there will be a particular translator in this case either from England or the United States who emerges as the closest translator to that person and then a, you know 50 years later 100 years later Hmm. another translator will emerge as being regarded as the best translator hmm. you see this in prose uh, the many translations say of Chekhov or Tolstoy
0: hmm. well yeah, that's that's really cool I, I, I honestly had not thought of it that way So sort of like uh, the sort of generational chains that those translations can take um, obviously you've worked on you know in a variety of mediums not just poetry so you've also you know written libretto for opera for example um, yeah. when you're approaching different forms of writing is that is that the same process for you or you know does it sort of are you saying you know this is how i write or do those sort of those different mindsets
1: there it again it's the experiences of writing for the opera were very specific in the constraints in that I had the advantage in that I was working from a book of my own. But it was a book that had 45 sections and sort of was strung together like a mobile. And uh, you know, I like to use the mobile as a metaphor for poetry because one of the things I love is that with a mobile, if it's collapsed on a table, it's just a lot of string and objects and shapes but if you lift it up you see how the different pieces are strung from the different Mm. limbs of the mobile but that's still not the mobile it it doesn't really exist until a breeze hits it and it's in motion Mm. and a poem's like that a poem's created of all of these different pieces that are linked in different ways but it doesn't exist as an experience until one's own imagination and sensibility as a reader begins to engage with it. And so in the writing of a poem, that's something that I think about. In this book called The Face, these 45 sections had this kind of linkage to them. But for the opera, because many of the sections were reflective Um, many of the sections were abstract and um, sort of psychologically doing X or Y or Z, I needed to lift out of the book a fairly clear storyline so that the audience would be able to follow the trajectory of the four figures, the four characters in the opera. And so with Don Crockett who wrote the amazing score, we decided at the beginning how many singers there would be. And there's actually a lot of you know different pressures on getting an having an opera produced that all have to do of course with money and how many singers, what you know mm-hmm. who's going to do what. So we just dis- but we decided on 4. And so that allowed me to understand how the narrative arc would move. And so that was what I did. I I charted, I think we initially had 14 scenes. One of the scenes we dropped and two of the scenes we combined. And the other thing that if one writes for music, you know that it takes a lot longer to sing a word than it does to just say a word. So I had to find a way to really cut back on uh, what the different characters, the different singers were actually actually saying. It was an incredible amount of fun for me.
0: Well, that sounds like an amazing experience, I and mean, it's just so cool. Maybe uh, even you know that you were able to take your own work and maybe look at it in a in, in new light. Um, you mentioned sort of the the idea of the mobile and, and how it's all these different pieces coming together, and I guess that makes me curious just... And this is something I ask of, of sort of everyone I interview, but where do those pieces come from for you? you um, and, and maybe what is the process of creation? For example, when you have a poem, does it start with a phrase and, and just an idea, an image? Where, where does that begin?
1: Yeah, it's all almost always a piece of verbal music. And for me what a poem is, uh, a a poem persuades not by its argument. I mean, a poem isn't an essay. A poem persuades us by its music, its rhythm, um, the cadences, the way in which the speaker is able to unravel whatever the concern, the thought, Whatever they want us to engage with, but in a way that we experience it, so I never trust a poem that wants me to say yes or no," in other words, any poem that asks me to um you know to to say oh well to to admire the speaker and his or her you know e- extraordinary deep feelings or you know the the wonder of what they've just recognized in a revelation that turns me into being a voyeur and I can see and watch w- maybe what they experienced but what a great, di- what a really great writer does, or a great filmmaker, or a great you know, dancer, a great musician is that they include you in the experience, they make the experience your experience and it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree. You've had an experience that you can really respond to.
0: Hmm. Um, do you maybe have any sort of just closing words for maybe any aspiring writers or young writers or, or just you know, anyone who, who wants them to, to make interesting things?
1: Yeah, I, I think that you, it really doesn't matter what you end up choosing as your mode as an artist. I think there's some people. If I could have been a painter, I would have loved to have been a painter. And I was. Um, I, one of my aunts was a fabulous painter. Um, and every time I, you know, smell, you know, oil paints and turpentine, I get, you know, really like excited in an irrational way. But that wasn't, you know, I, that, I couldn't do that. I could do it in a kind of Pedestrian way. Um, I had a much better shot as a musician because I had a certain facility that I could fake it up to a point. But I really realized, you know, by the time I was eighteen, that there were were people who were so much more gifted as musicians of all kinds, and uh, I. It wasn't that I let that stop me. But I was very realistic. I mean, I knew that I wanted to do something that felt most close to me. And I don't, you know, if somebody tells me they want to be a writer, that's great. But if they tell me they want to play trumpet, or if they tell me, you know, that they want to dance, it seems to me equally fabulous. Because it's choosing a life... Where you can try making a life doing something you love. And so much of the world around us asks us to try to make a life out of doing something we probably don't care that much about. And if any of us have the opportunity to try to live a life and make a life, you know, creating something, giving pleasure, if you believe in, Beauty. you believe in music, you believe in art. That's something that I think you should take seriously. It's not easy, um, it's not lucrative, but it's the most like yourself you will ever feel. And once somebody realizes that they'd rather feel like themselves than somebody that their families or their teachers tell them
0: they should be, There's kind of no going back. I can't think of a better way to end it. So, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Absolutely, Chase. Thank you. Once again, a huge thanks to David for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. He's a great guy and uh, really generous with his time to sit down with me um, and uh, do a little interview and just talk about... uh, what it is for him as a writer and as a teacher so again huge huge thanks to david as always make sure you check out our other episodes at either createcastpod.com or search createcast in the itunes store we're also going to be putting up some episodes on soundcloud soon so i'll let you guys know when that's happening um and make sure you drop us a line sign up for the email newsletter send us an email leave a comment rate us on itunes it's a huge huge help we really really appreciate it so once again i am chase k your host of create cast this has been episode two and now here is david st john reading uh, one of his poems from his most recent book he talks a little bit about sort of the inspiration behind the poem and then uh, gets into the reading so enjoy this little snippet and again huge thanks to david enjoy
1: This is a poem from my most recent book, which is called The Auroras. And this is a poem that is really interesting because when it appeared in The New Yorker, I suddenly got this flood of mail from people. And you can decide why that might be the case. It's called Without Mercy, the Rains Continued. There had been a microphone hidden beneath the bed. Of course, I didn't realize it at the time, and in fact didn't know for years, until one day a standard khaki book mailer arrived, and within it an old stained cassette tape Simply labeled in black marker, him, me, September 1975. And as I listened, I knew something had been asked of me across the years and loneliness, to which I simply responded with the same barely audible silence that I had chosen then.